Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Last Saturday, we began a conversation with the current and immediate past presidents of the Canadian Medical Association about the crisis, and I'm not overstating this, the crisis enveloping Canadian healthcare. Today, Drs. Alika Lafontaine and Catherine Smart continue on our program with their assessment of what Canada's healthcare system is most in need of. Dr. Smart has repeatedly said on the show that the money should follow the patient. This, as a new funding model between Ottawa and the provinces, is taking shape. And there is increased talk and really an increased presence of private healthcare in Canada appearing likely. Very sadly, and this is also an example of how dire things can be and are, reports of two Nova Scotia women dying while waiting for care at hospital emergency rooms. The system is stressed to and beyond the max. Dr. Smart, welcome back. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for having me. And Dr. LaFontaine, good to speak with you again, sir. How are you? Great to be back. So let's start where we left off last Saturday, and we were talking about money and money that is required for the healthcare system, but the appropriate application of the monies. And Dr. Smart, you talked about money following the patient. So the federal and the provincial governments are moving closer to a new funding model, we're told. What do you understand it to be? And Dr. Lafontaine, what is the CMA's response? Well, I think, you know, what we've been hearing a lot from the federal government is they've laid out several priority areas that they think are critical to transforming the healthcare system. And they've made it, I think, clear to the provinces that this idea of the feds providing dollars with no accountability in the system and no identification of shared priorities is, is over. And we've seen a lot of resistance to that. But lately, this past week, we've started to see some of the provinces come around to acknowledge that they accept there'll be some degrees of strings attached and some need to identify priority areas in the system and start working collaboratively towards executing on that. Um, and I think from the CMA perspective, you know, that's, that's welcome news. We are, are very aligned with what the federal government has laid out as important. Um, we'd like to see more accountability in the system. I think it's quite clear that, that we have not had that, and that's partly what's led to the, the challenges we're at. So I think this is a positive first step, but of course, you know, getting down to actually doing the work is uh, where the rubber hits the road and that needs to start happening immediately. Does the money follow the patient? Right now, no, it doesn't. And and that's, I think, one of the real challenges in our system in terms of accountability. Uh, We don't have that type of a model. Um, Our hospitals in Canada are funded on what's called global budgets, meaning they're given a certain amount of dollars to sort of make it through the year uh, rather than the dollars following the the patient, which is called activity-based funding, which then, of course, incentivizes ensuring that certain volumes of care get delivered to patients. And, of, of course, there's then more accountability around the actual care the patient's receiving. 
Um, so I think that's those are sort of some of those foundational issues that we really need to understand about what the pros and cons are, what the unintended consequences are of some of our current funding models, um, and how we can become more patient-centered in our delivery of care and more accountable to Canadians in terms of what they can expect in terms of healthcare delivery. Dr. Lafontaine, you, you, you subscribe to the money follow the patient approach, yes? Yeah, it's probably no surprise that, that Dr. Smart and I are, are on the same page, you know, going from her year into my year leading the CMA. I, I think what's really important to also add to this conversation is that we don't have health data that shows us whether or not the money is following the patient. We don't actually have the infrastructure to, to show that that money uh, follows the patient. It's probably a surprise to some of your listeners that with the Canada health transfer, money doesn't even have to be spent on health. And so just from a very base level, we have to re-explore not only how we fund, but also how we track. And then how are we bringing things together so patients and providers can understand where money is moving in the system and that decisions are being made in a way that build our programs versus letting them deteriorate. Yeah, I think it's going to stun people to know that money doesn't have to be spent on health, that it's not mandated. Can we talk a bit about how stressed this public system is now, and, and maybe the here's the metaphorical situation, hypothetical situation, not metaphorical, hypoth hypothesis. If a Canadian feels ill and presents to his or her family doctor, assuming he or she is not one of the five million Canadians who have no family doctor, what might that patient be facing in 2023 as far as appropriate and timely follow-up, diagnosis, investigation, and treatment is concerned? You know, I, I think it really depends on what their problem is. I mean, First of all, if someone's fortunate to have a longitudinal family doctor, they're already over the biggest hurdle because they now have someone who is going to help them quarterback their care. So that's huge. But then, of course, that physician is is sometimes limited by the wait times that they're facing. You know, so if they have a patient that they ascertain from their assessment needs certain diagnostic imaging, perhaps a, a referral to a specialist, perhaps surgery, you know, th they are limited in, in being able to ensure that any of that happens in a timely way. And right now we're seeing those back logs continue to grow. Um, and, and often the wait times are extremely long. And it means that people's care is being compromised. It means that people are presenting with more advanced disease. Um, diseases are worsening while people are waiting to be seen. And that then, of course, means more resources are needed to help those patients. So it becomes this vicious circle, really, uh, in terms of, of getting the optimal outcomes from our system for patients and providers and just, you know, resource utilization in general. We could say people are dying while they're waiting, yes? Absolutely. And in fact, work that we've done at the CMA has shown that there has been excess deaths that we have documented through our work with Deloitte throughout the pandemic due to inability to access care. Um, and as you stated at the beginning, you know, we're hearing more and more stories of people dying in emergency departments yeah. or waiting to attend emergency departments, waiting to be seen um, because of these wait times um, and the inability to get timely care. So there's no question that people are losing their lives as a direct result of the system and how it's functioning right now. Dr. LaFontaine, what's the number one issue on uh, on your plate uh, as the current president of the Canadian Medical Association? What do you spend most time on? And then uh, part B to the question, professionally for you, what's the greatest challenge that you face every day that needs to be resolved? I, I think the biggest challenge for myself and I, I think for Dr. Smart and, and everyone else who's advocating in this space right now is, is helping people see the immediacy of the crisis. In healthcare, it's not in front of you unless you're accessing care or you have a close family member who, or a close friend who's, who's going through care. I, I think it's, it's probably not surprising that you could probably ask most of the people around you and almost everybody has an experience now. 
Uh, but then how do you take that complexity and unwind it in a way that's easily understood? You know, uh, one of the challenges with complexity is people often throw up their hands and they say, you know, this is just too difficult to figure out. The, the truth is, if we sit down and actually go through the problems and we go through the different solutions, it, it starts to make sense the more time that you spend with it. And so, you know, that, that's probably the biggest challenge with advocacy is, is helping decision makers both see and understand what they can do to, to make a difference. And I, I think personally, you know, going back to, to something that was just said, patients are, are feeling very chaotic, uh, feeling a lot of chaos right now as they, they navigate their way through the system. You know, the recent news stories about patients who, who died in emergency, uh, you know, one of the things I took away from from those stories is that patients are trying to be smart in how they navigate. You know, one of those patients actually came to the hospital by car instead of waiting for an ambulance to show up because they knew it would take six hours. So people are, are being smart in the way they access the system, but they, they still can break through the challenges that we have. And, and as a provider, that's probably the most frustrating part of what we do. You know, we, we show up, we expect to do work, and we can't help people because of the chaos yeah, that's surrounding us. That's got to be so hard for for each and every doctor in, in this country. Does that take us back to what we talked about or you raised last Saturday when we spoke, and that is 13 different healthcare systems in one country, and you're expected to be working in synchronicity? It's hard. You know, I, I think it's especially hard because we've never tried to lean in and actually do it. You know, hmm. it should it should be what do we do then? communicated to, to folks that we, we've actually never tried to implement a lot of these things before. We, we've never tried to have, you know, a national registration regime where we can actually track, you know, nurses, doctors, all these other health professionals across the country. We, we've never tried to align our systems mm -hmm. so they could be seamless. And because of that, we, we're having these challenges. And that's actually the solution. I think it's 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 bringing us together and having us collaborate. Finally, is it necessary for healthcare professionals, doctors, nurses Perhaps paramedics, uh, people within the system to be mobile. So if you need them in, in Ontario next week and then you need them in Alberta and then you need them in British Columbia and then you need them in Nova Scotia, create some sort of schedule. Is that possible? Is that not just is that not, not doable or not, not even advisable? I, I, yeah, I definitely do think that it's absolutely possible. And, and the bottlenecks at different places will be different. You know, I'm an anesthesiologist, so I work in the OR. You know, some ORs shut down because there's not enough nurses. Other ORs shut down because there's not enough anesthesiologists and other ones because there's not access to a surgeon. Hmm. And so being able to match schedules and move people around to where they can help with bottlenecks, I think is something that, that we're all very incentivized to do, but it's impossible in the system with the way that we track and coordinate right now. Uh, Dr. Lafontaine, Dr. Smart, an increased role for private healthcare seems inevitable. Certainly Ontario and uh, the provincial government assuring such private care is going to happen, but involvement will not result in the poaching of doctors, nurses, and other staff from the stressed public system. I don't know what, who of you wants to take this on. How does that sound to you? I have a few thoughts on that. I, I think, you know, it's it's a, such a challenging conversation in Canada because we're never really clear what we're talking about. So I think what most Canadians don't understand is we already actually have significant private delivery of publicly funded health care in this country. Every family doctor 
office almost in this country is an example of that. They are paid by the government and then they privately deliver health care through their office. They're responsible for the building, the people in it, all the costs of executing that practice. And they pay for that out of the public funds they get for seeing patients. So our model is already a private public share model. So I, I think, you know, m- many people don't really understand that that's already how we're working. Um, so I think really what, what we're talking about or what most people think about when we say private public is they mean people people paying for their health care. They don't mean the private delivery of health care that was publicly funded, which is what we currently have. Mm-hmm. So I think we have to really be careful that we're defining what we're talking about, that we're clear what we're meaning and what the actual impact is on patients. I think, you know, what we're advocating for is an equitable system, a system where uh, care, essential medical care is publicly funded. Um, is there areas to improve on the, how that care is actually delivered to patients? I think that's very clear because our current models aren't doing that effectively. Um, so I think when we have this conversation, we really want to think about what we mean. I think it is really important to think about if you start to create parallel systems, what that means for human health resources. And I think that's absolutely one of the biggest risks. Right now, we don't even have the resources to staff the, the system that we have. So what are we going to do about that? How, how do we uh, better support people and make sure that we have that, those human health resources? Um, but I think this this is a complicated conversation and there's a lot of layers to it that need unpacking. Uh, Dr. Lafontaine, let me move this into a somewhat different direction. The purchase of private health insurance, which the patient should be able to use if timely care isn't provided. I have a motion in front of me from the CMA in 2005, which reads, The Canadian Medical Association supports the principle that when timely access to care cannot be provided in the public health care system, the patient should be able to utilize private health insurance to reimburse the cost of care obtained in the private sector. That's 2005. How is that viewed in 2023? So obviously the environment has changed, but it's the same conversation. So any time that patients have been challenged with access and providers have been challenged with providing high quality accessibility to care, we, we have this conversation. And so I, I agree with Dr. Smart. We have to make sure that we're, we're focused on talking about the right things. Now, the the part that, that I'd say in response to that is we, we have to be very mindful that our solutions actually match our problems. And so what, what's our biggest problem right now? It's access, right? When, when patients think about being able to pay for their own care, which I think is what most Canadians look at when they think about private, private health care delivery, they think that they'll receive higher access. The reality is maybe, maybe not. Private care tends to be focused on areas that are profitable, which should be not a surprise to anyone. And certain parts of healthcare just aren't profitable in the way that the healthcare system is is designed. You know, and so you, you end up having private care applied to, you know, one-off surgeries, you know, brief encounters with primary care providers. You know, maybe it it increases your access to someone longitudinally. So because you pay an extra fee, you can you can stay with the same person over time uh, because you pay that extra cost. I, I don't believe that's actually going to positively impact a huge amount of patients in Canada, even if it was implemented. And whenever you create a system that doesn't have coordination and collaboration, you end up fragmenting it in a way that becomes competitive. And so uh, the, the real question that I have with any of the solutions that come forward is how is this actually increasing access? Who is it providing access to? And is that the people that we actually need to provide access for? And the third part is, is how does it make the whole experience more seamless? And I, I think with the way that we've been discussing certain initiatives, whether it's in Ontario or elsewhere, I, I don't believe that that's the direction we're going. When it comes to private health care and more accurately private 
healthcare insurance in this country, few people are more engaged, I don't think anybody is, than our first guest today, Dr. Brian Day, the head of Camby Surgery Center in Vancouver. Dr. Day, as many of you know, most of you know in this country, has had a case going forward in the courts for years, and just months ago, the BC Court of Appeal ruled against Dr. Day, so now it's going to go to the Supreme Court of Canada. But what I find particularly interesting is that in 2005, here's what the Canadian Medical Association wrote. The CMA, the Canadian Medical Association, supports the principle that when timely access to care cannot be provided in the public health care system, the patient should be able to utilize private health insurance to reimburse the cost of care obtained in the private sector. If all that sounds confusing, and I knew it does to a lot of folks, because we've been around this tree and from so many compass points, many people really don't know what's going on anymore as far as care is concerned, except for the fact that it's very difficult to obtain. Five million Canadians have no family doctor, so the first link of the healthcare chain breaks down. And if you need surgeries or you need diagnosis or you need treatment, in so many cases across the country now, it's unavailable because the system is under such massive stress. Dr. Brian Day is the founder of Canby Surgery Center in Vancouver, former president of the Canadian Medical Association. Dr. Day, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. Where, before we get into detail, would you just explain to us, please, and explain to our listeners what I just read? What did the Canadian Medical Association support in 2005? So actually, it, it remains CMA policy today, that, um, and the CMA intervened in the Charlie case that you referenced um, in, in Quebec, and the Quebec case that went to the same Supreme Court of Canada that we're going to. And, and basically, what they said is that if, if, a, if the government won't provide the service in a timely fashion, in a, in a safe fashion, um, in, in other words, within the time limit that, they, that governments have determined is safe, then you should have the right it's a right that every citizen in every other country on the planet has, but not every Canadian, um, to use private health insurance. And, and, you know, we do use private health insurance already for um, prescription drugs and, and physiotherapy and things like that, which are essential also. So, um, but, so we're essentially hoping to have the Supreme Court of Canada um, basically say, yes, uh, Residents outside of Quebec should have the same rights that we granted to Quebec residents um, um, in 2005. That that's the gist of our argument, and um, that if it, and this is you know this is a freedom that every country offers to its citizens. Even the extreme authoritarian and communist countries offer this offer this as as a, a right. You know, and it comes down to the fundamental question. Being who owns your body, who is responsible for your bodily health, and in Canada, the governments take the take the position that they are, they own your bodies and they are responsible for your bodily health. Well, we know that in Canada, it is impossible in many areas to receive timely public care. Now, it's just not there because the system is so overburdened. So, in 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 a case of a patient who would require your services, can we do a hypothetical here? A patient who requires your services, engages your services, and then needs to pay for the service, if that person were to have the insurance or the right to purchase insurance, how would it work? Well, it would be like going to the dentist. 
And you, you see, I, I, I basically um, take the position that, um, that the government cannot promise healthcare, then fail to deliver it in a timely manner, and then make it unlawful for you to take matters into your own hands and look after yourself. And, and this is, to me, this is a fundamental freedom that should exist in any um, democracy and actually it does exist in every other democracy and it exists in every authoritarian company. You know, one, one of the things you alluded to is, is the five million people that can't get a family doctor. Mm-hmm. Well, guess why that is? Guess who cut back on the medical schools in the, in the 90s saying, oh, there are too many doctors treating too many patients and that's causing costs to rise. So they, the solution of governments was to close and medical schools and uh, cut back medical schools by up to 30% across the country and to close nursing schools. And guess what? We have a shortage of doctors. Yeah. Surprise, surprise. Yeah. So your argument in court is basically what you've just described to us, correct? Yes, yeah. The, the, the bigger difference is that, you know, one of the, the, one of the things that's changed now since 2005 is that governments across the country have established the maximum times that patients should wait for every, pretty well every procedure. And the evidence, government data um, that was in our trial shows that patients are waiting beyond the maximum time that the government says, has ruled, has stated is safe. And and yet they're still denied any, uh, the ability to do anything about it. So over 15,000 patients die every year on public wait lists in Canada, and many more die without getting onto the wait list and before they've, they've made a wait list, because as you know, there's a big, a big wait to get on the wait list. Okay. So the, yeah, it is. The, system, the system has collapsed. It's in the news, as you said, every, every day. And, um, and one of the things which you alluded to in your introduction, um, uh, Roy, was that the money doesn't follow the patient. So, so if you're a hospital in Canada, unlike every other developed country um, in the OECD, and if you go to a hospital, you are consuming the annual revenue that they've received. Whereas in every other, so in New Zealand or Sweden or those countries, other countries with social services that exceed ours in many ways, and when you go to an emergency department or to a hospital for a procedure, the public the government pays the facility and the hospital a fee. Here, that doesn't happen. The money doesn't follow the patient. So uh, if you're the chief financial officer of a hospital here, the last thing you want is patients because they use up your annual budget. Dr. Day, the, the argument against your position is that the, if I understand it correctly, I think I do, the poor will be pushed to the back of the queue. What do you say to that? Well, it's not absolutely not true, and there are two reasons for this. Uh, one is the poor, uh, quote, are already at the back of the queue. Stats Canada says the worst access and the worst health outcomes in Canada right now under the status quo are in lower income groups. Um, but the other point is, you know, I lived and worked in Switzerland for a while, and, and the government can do what the Swiss government does, which is if you're low income, if, if, if the public system is not performing, which um, is in the hands of the, pub, of the government, and if if you um, there is nothing to do to stop governments doing what the Swiss government does, and that is low income Canadian um, Swiss uh, have their premiums paid by the government. 
And so, so if it, the perception is that those with private health insurance are getting better access, then let the government pay the premiums for the for low-income groups and let those who can afford it or have employers that will fund it um, pay, pay themselves or have it through as a work benefit, just like, you know, dental and, and, and hospital and prescription drugs and so on are, are often covered here. Um, but the other thing I should re- remind you of, which is part of the bizarre system, is that this changes if you cross a border. So, so a few months ago, I was operating in BC quite, you know, this is allowed on three Albertans who were on long wait lists in Alberta, whereas a colleague, while a colleague in Alberta was operating on three BC residents. So this is nonsense. There's no, this is like, this should be in a Monty Python skit with people sharing this, you know, sharing the, the rides each way. When, when I moved to Quebec from Ontario in 2007 and lived there for nine years, one of the things I became aware of was that my health care, my Quebec health care, was not portable or in a very limited manner. So if I went to another province, I was covered up to $100 a day. That's not going to get you any coverage at all. So I was told that if I moved within Canada to another province, I had to buy travel health insurance. And it just sounds bizarre. And so last weekend when we spoke with the current and immediate past presidents of the Canadian Medical Association, we talked about 13 different health jurisdictions that exist in one country. That by itself just leads to an unwieldy reality. How can 13 different jurisdictions work cooperatively and, and in a synchronized manner, Dr. Day, in, 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 a, in a national environment? I, I just don't see how it's possible. Well, they don't. And that's why, you know, the, as I say, we have, counting the federal government, we have 14 ministries of health in Canada and for a population of 38 million. Other countries with double the population have one. And uh, that's why if you compare Canada to Germany, for every public health bureaucrat that, um, that Germany has, Canada has 11. And they're consuming, they're consuming the healthcare budget. And that's why Canada, in, in the, uh, according to the Canadian Institute for Health Information and the Commonwealth Fund, is of, of 10 countries with universal healthcare uh, that they surveyed, we are the most expensive and the worst in access and the worst in equity. So we don't look after the low-income groups. It's, it's, um, it's just that this information is, uh, needs to get out there, and, and um, I guess you're helping it get out. Well, I think it's, I mean, it's critically important we have people on waiting lists who are dying. Well, just, just last week I got a call from someone who, who, who said, can I help her, BC resident, can I help her? She's been diagnosed with a cancer and has been given an appointment for September. And, um, of course, we're not allowed to. So we say, well, maybe you should go to Alberta and, and see if they can look after you there. And, you know, this is, this is uh, there's a, a fellow from Rome, Italy, a health expert, who has written a 14-page article in an Italian law journal um, uh, describing Canada's health system as one designed for wealthy people who can afford to go to the United States when they need health care. Mm-hmm. I take it you have no shortage of patients. No, we, we, we are treating non-residents. I mean, this week I, I operated on patients from Alberta, Ontario, and, um, and that's the way, that's the bizarre situation right now that exists, that, that if you're from a different province, it's like you're from a different, um, different country in terms of 
healthcare, but it shouldn't be this way. It sh- we should look, you know, it's like I, I'd use the hockey analogy. If, if there are 10 countries doing better than you that have universal healthcare and you're the most expensive and the least perfor- worst performer, wouldn't you want to look at the top two or three and see what mm-hmm. they're doing and maybe try and copy some of the elements of the system that they operate under that's more efficient and, and treat yeah. the patient in a timely way? We've often said, why not look at the systems that work in other countries and borrow or just adopt the best of their system and apply it to this country because there's a clear need. So we have these competing positions. And so so you're seen as being um, compromising. Your plan is to compromise the healthcare system, the public healthcare system, and provide an option for those who can pay as opposed to those who cannot pay. But our public healthcare system isn't working. Well, yeah, but that they don't admit that. They think it's wonderful, obviously. I mean, I, I think that the point, you know, in terms of the generic, but the point is that a monopoly, which is what they want to maintain these groups, you know, the trade unions want to maintain their monopoly, um, but not the trade union members. You know, when we opened our clinic, 95% of unionized staff at the at the at the hospital were were polled and were supportive, and um, and what um, you know what what a what a private facility offers is a safer environment and a surgery center offers a safer environment. And those the stats are very clear: almost forty percent less com uh, forty times fewer complications than in a public hospital. Um, when surgeries are performed in these in these freestanding centers. But but you got to remember when the private sector builds them, they're built. They are there are significant advantages for the government. They're built at no cost to the taxpayer. The construction phase uh, creates jobs and economic activity, and all of the infrastructure and equipment is paid for uh, by non-government funds. And and unlike pu- public hospitals, they generate if they do make a, a profit, which is a dirty word in in in, in the, terms of what trade unions think, then then they pay re- tax revenue to all three levels of government, municipal, federal, and provincial. And if they fail, the government doesn't suffer any losses. But the advantages are massive. And actually, the Alberta government um, has determined in, in an audit that um, joint replacements, if they're done in a private freestanding surgery center, uh, cost $1,500 per case less. Uh, than done in a hospital. Okay. So they actually say, contracting out actually saves the government, uh, or rather saves the taxpayer. So, so so, what is your thinking on, and we've heard that uh, the federal government and the provinces are closer to a new funding model. The provinces have been asking for $28 billion uh, from the federal government for, as in, more input, more financial input. It's not just about... And I, um, the immediate past president of the CMA told us last weekend, and I said before, Dr. Smart, the money has to follow the patient. It's not just about putting more money into the healthcare system, is it? Putting more money into the system, I don't know if it improves anything. It, it, will, it will put more, more money into a system that just seems to absorb huge amounts of money um, very quickly, and, and the results are, are simply not there. Otherwise, we wouldn't have people on massively long wait lists and not being treated. But what do you think of this this whole idea of a new funding model? 
Well, it was tried in 2004 in, in uh, Chrétien and the First Minister's meeting, put $40 billion in and described it, as a fix. they described it as a fix for a generation. It didn't, it, things have gotten worse. So I, I putting, you know, one of the few things I agree with the federal government on is, is putting the money in with no, no requirement for accountability is inappropriate. The other thing I should mention, because you brought up the registrar saying it would take away nurses or staff is absolutely not true. There are unemployed orthopedic surgeons in this in this country, 200 of them, who can't get a job because the government is rationing access. And and these colleges, the College of Physicians of, of, of Ontario is one of 13 such organizations in Canada. Again, they should all be dismantled and replaced with one um, one body that grants licenses to Canadians. Uh, am, I correct if I, am I correct if I suggest these provincial colleges are entities unto themselves, essentially? Exactly. They're, bureau- they're part of the massive bureaucracy. There are 3,500 young Canadians in foreign medical schools and who, who, uh, who need to come back, and these colleges are, in many cases, blocking them by the slow, ponderous thing. I think if we close down... Well, um, all of those colleges and had just one national body, which is what they do in other countries, uh, then we would save a lot of money and uh, expedite the process. And also, yeah. and those doctors that are working in those colleges, and there are dozens in every college, um, could go back to practicing medicine and treating patients instead of shuffling paper in the college. You know, Dr. Day, in uh, 2000, I had a uh, cardiac procedure done. I had a 99% blockage of my left anterior descending artery, which is called the Widowmaker. And I waited months to get into uh, to get into a cath lab for an angiogram and then the procedure. And I spoke with the head of cardiology at the Hamilton General Hospital at the time. Um, I think it was actually the chief of medicine. And he was lamenting the fact that patients were dying on wait lists. That was in 2000. It hasn't gotten any better. And I just feel that, and, and this is just one Canadian's opinion, there's just pushback and resistance to change. And I don't know why that is, because if we look at the big picture again of healthcare delivery in Canada, it is in trouble. And by that, we mean that Canadians are in trouble. Individual Canadians are suffering and struggling because they can't get the healthcare we've been promised, and frankly, which we pay for. So other options need to be examined. You mentioned Switzerland earlier. I've spoken with um, the, the head of the Swiss healthcare system on this program, not recently, but a few years ago. And, and he pointed out that each Swiss citizen is required by law to buy insurance. And that insurance is, is, is based on, I think it was the, just the individual financial st- strength of, that, of the individual. As you pointed out, people who cannot afford it, the state pays for it. But the expectation is that you will pay for your health insurance and you will perhaps access the system a little less frequently and only when you need it. I don't know if that's fair or not or if I'm describing it properly, but that's what I remember. So our system is not working. The fact that so many people are struggling and suffering and don't have a doctor, that in and of itself points to the problem. And and we have these, I, I call them self and self-interest groups um, like the, the nurses' union who actually put, the, put the, the, the leaders of those unions are putting their own, their own 
desires and needs ahead of patients. And that's Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Yeah. I absolutely know that. A liberal government will also do what the Harper conservatives ought to have said years ago. We will not buy the F-35 fighter jet. I believe I heard the word never in there somewhere from uh, the prime minister in 2015. I think the word never appeared there. Now, if he'd gone ahead and followed through on the purchase in 2015 of the F-35s that had been... uh, had been agreed to by the Harper government, initiated by Mr. Chrétien, three-term liberal member of parliament and prime minister, more than three terms as an MP. He was, a, he was, he was the finance minister for Pierre Trudeau. Anyway, if uh, Justin Trudeau had gone ahead with the F-35s in 2015, we would be spending a lot less money. We'd have the things uh, available to us now instead of, and I'm not knocking this F-18, it was a great plane in its day, but it's not any longer. It's a museum piece. If it went up against today's jet fighters, well, it wouldn't have a chance, nor with our pilots. And we cannot attract uh, fighter pilots if you're going to tell them they're going to have to fly museum pieces. I mean, that the F-18 may be okay in a Tom Cruise sequel, but in real life, not so much. So they've now said they'll go ahead and buy the F-35 at a massively increased cost. This follows the announcement of surface ships for the RCN, the Royal Canadian Navy, and the spending of $400 million to purchase a missile defense system from the U.S. for Ukraine. By the way, Canada's military has had no such missile system. I, I don't know if ever, but certainly not for a long, long time. And the announced purchase of the F-35 fighter planes to replace the CF-18s And the 15 warships, the frigates for the Royal Canadian Navy, is running into complaints of too much spending. This happens every time. We could buy pea shooters for the the CAF. And somebody would stand up somewhere in the country and say, pea shooters have gotten to be too expensive. Can't afford the ammunition. I, I don't know why we do that. It's a massive country. We have a tremendous amount of territory. We have uh, defense obligations. And, and our allies remind us of this on a constant basis. We have signed a NATO agreement that we're going to spend a certain percentage of GDP to supply our military, and we've fallen short time and time again. That's just the reality of the situation. But this is what we do. We complain about taking care of our military. My guest, uh, it's because of Vice Admiral Mark Norman that we have a supply ship for the Royal Canadian Navy. The Admiral went ahead and made sure that happened. He got the supply ship, got it on time, got it in on budget, which seemed to upset the current federal government, because they didn't like that. And, and without the supply, supply ship, without the asterisk, asterisk the, um, the, the Royal Canadian Navy would be a, a coastal defense force, because you can't head out to sea without a supply ship. I'm saying that as a former ordinary seaman standard in the Royal Canadian Naval Reserve, which is the lowest rank in the Navy, and I fought very hard to stay there. But joining us is Vice Admiral Mark Norman, former commander of the RCN, the Royal Canadian Navy, former Vice Chief of the Defence Staff, fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, and Samuel Associate Senior Defence Analyst. Admiral Norman, it's always an honour to speak with you. How are you, sir? I am very well, ordinary seaman green. Thank you very much, <laughs> yeah. and uh, all the best for 2023 to you and your listeners. Thank you, sir, and the very best to you as well. Um, 
I think I think you started as an ordinary seaman, didn't you? I did a long time ago. Yes, I did. I started as a mechanic, and uh, no regrets. Enjoyed uh, almost forty years uh, of service. Yeah, thank so you, you for your service. You've you've laid out an interesting problem there today, though. I assume we're going to talk about. Well, why don't we why don't we start uh, with the federal government's announcing concerning the purchase of the F thirty five fighter jets. This after Mr. Trudeau ridiculed such a person while running for PM in 2015. Isn't it true that the F-35 total purchase price would have been significantly lower and we'd have the jets in service today had we moved ahead then? Uh, well, yes and yes. Um, and I think there's an important lesson here. Um, not, not that the lesson may be actually learned uh, by those who choose to get into politics, but uh, when you make great sweeping statements like that, uh, you want to be very careful uh, that you actually have all the facts before you start uh, making promises that you can't deliver on. Anyway, the bottom line here is this is good news for Canada, notwithstanding the fact that it's now 10 years uh, later than it should be, and we're still going to have to wait another almost 10 years until we get uh, a useful number of these aircraft. But it's the right decision. Uh, it's the right aircraft. And, um, you know, I, I think uh, we can move forward. And I would like to believe that we can learn some lessons from this, but unfortunately, I'm not convinced we will. That's very unfortunate because it's been an ongoing issue. Proper procurement of uh, equipment for the Canadian Armed Forces has been an issue for, 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 for decades. It's not just this government. It's been previous governments as well, although this government is starring in that particular role. Admiral, the F-35, what does it bring to the equation? What does it bring to, to, to Canada? How does it help us defend ourselves because looking at this fractious world, God knows we may have to do that one day. We've had to do it in the past. And it also satisfies, does it not to a certain extent, our allies, and they now feel we have a more serious intent to protect ourselves and to fulfill our, 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 our treaty obligations. Yeah, so a couple of quick answers. As it relates to the aircraft itself, what it gives Canada is uh, truly a state-of-the-art um, fifth-generation uh, aircraft that is quite versatile. Uh, it can be employed in a, in a number of different roles. But most importantly, uh, as it relates to uh, the NORAD uh, Defense of North America arrangement that we're part of, uh, it, it, it is primarily an air defense uh, aircraft that, that can cover um, the vast uh, reaches of um, the air defense requirements of North America in support of the United States. Uh, the other thing it gives us is um, a very, very um, technology-enabled uh, aircraft that is more than just an airplane. It is, uh, in, in simple terms, uh, it is a sophisticated extension of the sensor network, uh, both land-based radars, uh, air-based, space-based uh, capabilities. So the aircraft operates uh, not just as a uh, an individual aircraft, but it operates as part of a bigger integrated uh, air defense capability for North America. And I think the last thing relates to your point about um, demonstrating our, our our commitment, albeit um, challenging at times, that that we are actually going to make uh, the right commitments. But it's also uh, an aircraft that's uh, been purchased by a number of allies, not just the United States. So it puts us uh, in a very good position as it relates to the long-term supportability of this aircraft because we're buying something that uh, many of our closest friends and allies are also operating. Uh, so, so that means that we'll be able to keep this thing flying um, 
for quite some time. And it also helps the economy because it creates jobs and it has a, I mean, it's an important part of our, our overall um, national identity. Uh, Admiral, though, and I mentioned this at the beginning, you know this far better than I, you were you were you were caught up in, uh, in 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 this whole bureaucratic situation as you were serving in our military. But criticism of spending on the Canadian military is endemic in this country. New ships for the Royal Canadian Navy, absolutely necessary. But here we are. We're hearing the criticisms. It's too expensive. It's going to cost three hundred and six billion dollars potentially over the sixty-five year lifespan of these frigates. Um, it, how frustrating is it for you to hear this? And what's the counterposition that needs to be heard? Yeah, so um, it's a, a really good uh, question. It's frustrating for me, but I think it's frustrating for those Canadians, uh, perhaps your listeners, who are actually um, interested in paying attention to these things because the numbers themselves are staggering. They almost uh, are so enormous now that, that, that they're hard to get your head around. Um, and that, I think, in and of itself is is frustrating. And I don't think that um, the government and officials are, are doing a good enough job of explaining what this really means. You made a comment earlier about, you know, the value for Canada. And it's not just about buying a widget or a big shiny object, as I call them. It's about building the industrial capacity to actually build these things uh, in, in particular, as it relates to the ships, but even the aircraft. I mean, there are components of the F-35 which are built in Canada, and they will be built in Canada for the life of that aircraft. But to the, to the issue of, you know, the spending, um, and there's, to me, there's, there's kind of a couple of different conflicting views on this, and, you, and you've laid them out. Um, if, if people are not inclined to want to spend on defense, I, it's a very difficult argument to make. Um, if you can't convince people that their way of life, their physical security, or their interests strategically are being threatened, um, why do we need to, to spend money on defense? And that's a whole argument. And then the question becomes, well, how much is enough? And Canada has always, behind closed doors, played this game. Um, well, how much is enough is basically just enough to make the Americans and our other allies believe that we're actually committed to this. And most of the major purchases we've made, certainly in my lifetime and, and for the history of the armed forces that I've studied, have been in what I would describe as a bit of a crisis. So we, we hang on to things too long, we wait too long, we then have a crisis of some sort, and then we have to replace them, and they cost a lot of money. Um, and the reality is they are costing a lot of money, but when you look at something over the life of 65 years, I would argue most most of your listeners probably wouldn't buy a car these days uh, if they looked at the cost of owning a car over 65 years. Um, that, that number in and of itself would be eye-watering and most of them would, would, would run away in tears. And that's the kind of sensationalism that we're witnessing um, as it relates to a lot of these conversations. Yeah. Admiral Norman, so Canada is now purchasing from the United States National Advanced Surface to Air Missile Systems. $406 million. First question I have is, why don't we have them? And why can't we give them one of ours? Well, we can't because we don't have them. Haven't had them for, I don't know if we've ever had one. Am I correct about that? And what's your sense of, 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 of the correctness of going ahead with this purchase? Yeah, so your, uh, your first question, uh, have we ever had anything like this? The short answer is not really. 
um, the last sort of army uh, field air defense capability Canada had uh, was ADATS, uh, kind of 1980s technology, 1990s, uh, taken out of service, hung around for a long time, short range, and not particularly effective, certainly not in a modern uh, warfighting context. This is a this is a state of the art capability, um, absolutely the right kind of thing uh, for um, for Ukraine. Uh, a number of our closest uh, and uh, best allies are, are using this system, and yes, it's exactly the kind of system uh, Canada should have. Um, sort of short to medium range, out to about sixty kilometers, depending on the version. Um, totally. Um, as I said, uh, high tech and uh, and very lethal, and it'll provide great support for the Ukrainian forces against Russian helicopters, uh, fast aircraft, and and uh, in particular some of the UAVs uh, that are becoming far more uh, prominent in in that conflict. Uh, why we don't have it? Well, um, quite simply, I, I would suggest it's uh, it's just a sense of national will. Um, the the uh, the list of things that Canada's armed forces needs um, is much longer than uh, the uh, willingness to actually buy them. Um, by the time a project gets to approval, it's already been um, whittled down to what is basically a uh, a small nub of what we should have. Um, I think there's an irony in the fact that uh, we're able to go out and buy this as a sole source purchase um, in the, in for all the right reasons. And I, I think this is absolutely the right thing for Canada to be doing, and I actually commend the government for doing it. But um, it is ironic that we can't get a system like this for our own armed forces. We have uh, a battle group deployed in Latvia. They should have a system exactly like this, uh, but they don't. They're depending on allies. Um, and, uh, you know, I think this is just a sad um, reflection of uh, how the armed forces uh, in Canada are, are neglected. Uh, and there's no there's no other way to say it. And um, it's uh, it's systemic and, and it's uh, generational. And uh, I, I don't know how uh, we're going to change this, but uh, I appreciate your ongoing concern. Well, uh, Admiral, when we hear concerns about the military being understaffed, not enough soldiers, not enough sailors, not enough airmen and women, um, one of the reasons is we don't provide them with what they require. We don't We don't also honor our military as we should. We don't recognize the job they do for all of us and their willingness to sacrifice their own lives for all of us. And, and Admiral, we have about uh, 90 seconds. Please remind us, we live in a world that is unstable now, and we may need this equipment, and we may need the men and the women of the Canadian military to defend this nation. It's a huge place. Well, it is, and and you and I have talked about this frequently, and whether, you know, uh, Canadians can accept the premise that um, the, the, the physical frontiers of Canada may or may not be threatened, um, it goes much deeper than that, and it, this is, this is a, a broader strategic issue where it's not just our physical um, sovereignty that may or may not be threatened, and it is threatened, uh, Russia, China on, on the rise, but it's our way of life and it's our national interests that are continuously under siege. And um, I, I 
I'm genuinely concerned that uh, in the not too far distant future, beyond what we're seeing in Ukraine, um, that uh, what we have grown to uh, enjoy and, and benefit from as a Western uh, developed and advanced economy um, is going to come under attack. Um, and, and we need to be ready. And we're not. And uh, we're not for a variety of reasons that you've laid out. And, and I think this should be uh, of concern. And I realize that there's a lot of things for Canadians to be concerned about. And, and those are legitimate issues. But fundamentally, um, keeping uh, our nation secure and our allies and our way of life secure, I think, is probably job one for any responsible government. Let's get to our guest, Tim O'Shea. From the Buffalo News, Tim has been reporting on the Buffalo Bills for for many years and uh, was a friend of Marv Levy, the great coach of, of the Bills, who took them to four straight Super Bowls. And the news, of course, over the last two weeks has been DeMar Hamlin and his health, which is improving day by day. Out of hospital, many are wondering if the Buffalo Bills defensive back may make an appearance at tomorrow's Bills-Dolphins playoffs game. Tim, how are you? And uh, what's the mood in uh, in Buffalo today with as far as a, the team is concerned and just as importantly for the Bills fans for DeMar? Hey, Roy, I'm good. Thank you. Uh, the, the mood in Buffalo is optimistic, um, great, grateful, so grateful, uh, like prayers answered for DeMar Hamlin and his family. And by, you know, by extension, of course, his teammates. Everybody at One Bills Drive and, and everybody who loves the Buffalo Bills, which, as you know, is a whole lot of people. Um, ever since DeMar's accident almost two weeks ago, uh, we've seen this, you know, after the initial shock and horror and, and the prayers that, that followed, um, it, it, you know, it's, it's really been that theme of prayers answered. Um, I, I had a, a, a nice conversation with Governor Kathy Hochul, New York Governor Hochul, last Sunday at the game. She brought that up to me right away. She said, look at the power of prayer. So, you know, from the from the governor to the, the players and their families and everybody, um, everybody's just so, so grateful. Uh, so some news, uh, not not big, well, actually re- really big news if you're a Buffalo Bill. Maybe uh, it, we're not sure how this is going to work out in terms of fans having the same experience. But DeMar Hamlin showed up to practice today um, to say hi to the guys, of course, not, not to practice. But Matt Milano... Uh, from the Bills, uh, posted on his Instagram story a photo of a very um, cheery, smiling Demar Hamlin uh, greeting his greeting his brothers outside the locker room, which was incredible to see. Uh, in terms of tomorrow's game, no word on whether he'll be there, no official word at least, and also therefore no word on whether he'll be uh, available or doing anything to to greet the fans, but. You and I both know there's tens of thousands, well, let's say hundreds of thousands of people, if not more, who are who are really, truly hoping he does something like that. Yeah, I would say millions across the United States and in Canada. Yeah, you know, that's true. That, that's true. You know, I, I, I'm sorry to jump in on you there, but that's true because, you know, even my instinct is always to think about people who love the Buffalo Bills. But if we're, you know, if we really what we need to do here in Buffalo, too, is, uh, and I think people have, take a step back and look at the whole situation an entire country, uh, an entire continent, uh, and beyond has embraced Damar Hamlin and this recovery he's made, and the hope that it, you know, that it that it gives so many people, and uh, not not to 
necessarily make it more than it is, but this has been a tough time in Buffalo. You and I, have, the last few weeks, have spoken about that. And by extension, it's been a, it, this has been a tough time, of course, in the, in the world. And it's really sweet to see people embracing hopeful stories like this. I've got to say, writing about it, watching it, caring about it, knowing the people, some of the people involved, that's been the most gratifying thing. I received an email, and I'm just paraphrasing, Tim, but it was uh, from a listener who said, in effect said, there is humanity in the stands at NFL games. Sometimes I'm not so sure. Just the, the booing that goes on and the, and the abuse that some players take. But DeMar's situation, the, the crisis on the field, following him through the next two weeks, has really shown there is humanity. There's a real concern for the individual human being, and I think that speaks well just fundamentally to the kind of people that we ultimately all are. Now, as far as his health is concerned, so he's up on his feet, he's out of the hospital, he was visiting with his teammates in, 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 in Buffalo, uh, did you say yesterday? Today, yeah, it looks like today. I, oh, today. I to Good. Uh, yeah, I mean, they, they, I'll put it this way, the Instagram story was posted today. Okay. I think that DeMar showed up for the walkthrough. So, so he could, if we just want to surmise here or extend a... The thinking, he he may be able to appear tomorrow. I can't I can't imagine what it would be like in that stadium, if suddenly Demar Hamlin and his family walk out to center field. I, I the the place would just go. Well, I think that it would move. It would move off its foundation. Yeah, and that stadium's already pretty old. Yes, it is. Uh, yeah. the, you know the foundation. <laughs> I've been there. Yeah, <laughs> it's a stadium that yeah you can rock I guess and feel it right. Uh, yeah, you know we. The, this is not a direct comparison, but it is a it is a good reference point. Back for the the Bills home opener back in uh, September, a Monday Night Football game. The team invited uh, Coach Marv Levy, of course, the the former Montreal coach, who, if I memory serves, he left Montreal to come to the Buffalo Bills. Yes, he did. If I'm thinking correctly, right? Yes, so, you're right. Thank you to Montreal for uh, for for that. Bill Polian to Marv Levy to the Buffalo Bills. Uh, but anyhow, Marv, of course, became a legend here, and he has a, so many famous quotes, but the most famous is, of course, where else would you rather be than right here, right now? Which are the words he'd say to his team before every game. Uh, the Bills booked Marv Levy secretly to come to that home opener. Marv's in his, his uh, mid to late 90s now. He came out on the field before the game, up behind Jim Kelly, who was leading the crowd in a chance, took the microphone, and when the, when the camera focused in on Marv Levy, the crowd absolutely exploded. And as he launched into where else would you rather be than right here, right now, the, the entire crowd joined him. So you had this unison chance. Uh, it was an incredible moment. And I am certain that Marv Levy would agree that if DeMar Hamlin, and it will happen sometime, whether it's tomorrow or another time, when DeMar Hamlin makes his appearance on that field, it allows you even the reception you saw, we saw for Marv. Yeah. You know, people are asking and their opinions being ventured everywhere about whether DeMar might be able to play again. We have the Danish soccer player, Ericsson, who had a heart, serious heart issue on the field um, was it two years ago, a year and a half ago. But he played in the World Cup just a couple of months ago in Qatar. Is there any speculating, or I'm sure there's lots of speculating, but what's the consensus about whether he may, DeMar may have the uh, his health restored sufficiently that he might be able to play again? 
<laughs> you're right. There's a lot of speculation. The, the the latest we know, which isn't too much because it's so early, but there was no precondition that uh, that, that made this happen. Uh, that what happens that caused the cardiac arrest was essentially a you know catastrophic uh, aligning of um, factors. Right that created, in essence, a heart attack. So it could happen. He, he may be, he, he might be able to play again. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 